Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and today I am coming to you from Washington, D.C., Uh, Also joining us in Washington, D.C., although we're in different locations in order to foil our enemies, we have Joe Cerencioni of the Plowshares Project, which he runs. I believe his title there is Lord High Commissioner. (laughs) Um, And we have um, Max Bergman, who is joining us for the first time, and I'm very glad of that, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and is directing the Moscow Project there, which we will talk about in a second. Hi, Max. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And Max uh, and Joe both have their own podcasts, which is making (laughs) me nervous. Um, But uh, Joe, what's the name of your podcast? It's Press the Button. Press the button, and it is a it is a it is like how to use appliances. Or... <laughs> it's, it, obviously, it's it, we talk about all things nuclear and national security. This is uh, it goes up every week on on Tuesday mornings, and uh, I, you you don't have to worry, David. We're not going to be any competition to you. We have tens of listeners at this point. Uh, you will have you will have thousands of <laughs> listeners in no time, and I strongly encourage everybody from the Deep State Radio Network to listen. Well, as a matter of fact, I just came back from Chris Van Hollen's uh, office. We just did a great interview with him about uh, Trump's nuclear strategy, and and that'll go up next week. Uh, tomorrow, or we have, um, or rather. Tuesday of this week, we have Wendy Sherman talking about the crisis in Iran and North Korea. Well, for those of you who are regular listeners, you know Joe is great and that you should listen to this, uh, other podcasts if you have time for it. If you don't have time for it, you only have time for one podcast through him, but if, if you have time for more than one, uh, you should definitely listen to it. And uh, because Joe is a friend, we will not make him put um, any money in the a jar that we keep in the middle of our virtual table here for anybody who suggests Trump has any strategy. Uh, but uh, I, pe- people who I, we, we, we should be penalizing people who talk about Trump's, you know, X strategy or Trump's uh, X doctrine. I love love when they talk about doctrine for the guy, this guy who is more dependent on impulse than, you know, a tree shrew. Um, and Max has a podcast. And what's your new podcast called? It's called The Asset. Uh, and it is uh, trying to tell the story of Trump and Russia in, in 10 episodes. So this isn't your sort of this week in the Mueller investigation. It's trying to really go back and understand how 
how the Russia investigation came to be, how Trump and Russia, uh, that how the ties developed. We go back and look at Trump's businesses, which we'll do in our second episode, which will drop tomorrow. Uh, and then look at Trump's business ties to Russia, and then also the rise of Vladimir Putin, the uh, the, the creation of his system of government, his sistema, in terms of how he uses oligarchs to kind of advance Russian state interests, and then talk about his turn against the West and why the 2016 election interference happened, and then then to answer the, the question at the end is basically the Mueller report going through and looking at the collusion between uh, Trump and Russia during the 2016 election. And it's and it basically comes out of a presentation that we started uh, doing more than two years ago when people were trying to figure out what is this Trump Russia thing. And we sort of developed our sort of theory of the case. And we haven't really changed it. And we've just sort of adapted it and, and put it into a podcast form. Um, well, that sounds really interesting. It certainly is the kind of thing that our listeners are deeply interested in. And, 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 and you know, this kind of 10 podcast format is, is kind of a useful new approach that's uh, an alternative to, uh, you know, to, to books or monographs, you know. My, you know, my wife, my wife listens to all books at three and a half speed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which no, it's true. She does, and she like you know. Last year she read a hundred books, um, <laughs> and I suppose you could do that with podcasts, but you'd miss the kind of warm, resonant tones that we all. That is exactly right. I have tried listening to Deep State Radio at one and a half, and I I I can't do it. I miss it. I want to, I slow it down, and I just take longer walks. Right. It, well, it, see, it's good for your health. And. It, it, and what we're trying to do here is really to sort of tell a story that is, you know, should be entertaining. This is one of the more fascinating stories that I think historians 50 years from now are going to be writing a lot of books about. Um, and and to sort of go back and we sort of we've become numb to kind of a lot of the, the larger story and to do it as if it was kind of an HBO series where we're going to, you know, each uh, each episode is going to sort of hit at a distinct part and really dissect it. So it but. The thing is, my my realization in, do, in in setting forth on this course is how much work it is to actually break this down and develop each episode, um, and so it's been been quite time consuming. But I think it's I think everyone will, will find it pretty interesting. Well, it's the right way to do it. Take it from me as a historian who's not waiting fifty years and is in the middle of writing a book about this same subject. I wish I were doing a podcast because uh -huh. uh, it's it's br pretty brutal, and I'm only dealing with a kind of a sub set of it. Um, based on the work that you guys have done at the Moscow Project and having looked at the Mueller report, if you were to have drafted, you know, if they turned to you um, and said, you write the report, how would your report differ from the Mueller report? It's a great question. And in fact, and this wasn't this question wasn't teed up for me to, to say this, but you know, we in fact wrote a hundred plus page report sort of outlining our theory of the case that we came out with in, de in December, um, largely targeted at new members of Congress. And I think the major thing that the Mueller report does, which I think is is in some ways a disservice to the reader. Um, is it disassembles all the contacts. It sort of takes every contact with Russia, every incident, and, and treats it in isolation. 
And what that does is it deprives the the reader of understanding what they knew and when they knew it. And so what our report does and what I think uh, is assemble the contacts together so that when you assemble it together, what you then see is that, oh, when Jared Kushner was meeting with, you know, the, uh, uh, the head of a Russian bank in December, he knew all about Russian interference in the 2016 election. He wasn't oblivious to it. He knew enough to then lie about it. And so when you start putting their meetings in context, in the context of what was known, what was publicly reported about Russia's interference, what the what wasn't publicly reported, but the but the uh, Trump campaign itself had known, uh, then it paints a far more damning picture of these meetings and contacts, which are then put in the context of this ongoing crime is taking place. They know about this ongoing crime, and yet they're still having these meetings. They're still having these contacts. Uh, they're, in fact, sort of running towards the crime. And then not only that, they're in the case of Trump himself, who knows about what Russia's doing. He's setting up a back channel to WikiLeaks, then goes into public debate and, and disassembles and says there was a 400-pound man that may was probably the person responsible for the hacking. And so I think when I think about the Mueller report, it, like, let's be clear, it is incredible incredibly damning. And it's not just the volume two obstruction of justice side. It is also volume one about the con continuously sharing polling data, you know, about setting up a back channel to WikiLeaks, about Trump's knowledge of what was happening. But when you actually put it in the context of what they knew, it becomes even far more damning. And it, it, it I think it clearly points to um, awareness of the Russian crime and clearly points to clear and obvious, uh, quote unquote, collusion with the Russians. Yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting point. And, you know, in the context of obstruction of justice, one of the uh, critical factors in weighing obstruction of justice is to have a pattern. Uh, and so while people sometimes take a shot at one or, or, or several of the obstruction charges that are covered in the Mueller report, the fact that there are so many um, is is compelling. And I think that the same holds true on the conspiracy um, uh, side of, of the aisle, where if you have a couple of hundred contacts with the Russians, uh, while no one of them may be, you know, citable or no, you know, few of them may be citable as a particular crime, um, uh, the standard is quite different when you're weighing uh, the high crimes and misdemeanors of impeachment. This is a point that I think uh, uh, oh, oh. Jack Goldsmith made at, at, at Lawfare recently, and that the, the, the case is very compelling that these guys did something horribly wrong, betrayed their country, did it for the wrong reasons, uh, took advantage of it, defended the people who did the crime, rewarded the people who did the crime, and continued to deny the crime um, uh, when, you know, the, 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 there is this massive mountain of evidence, uh, of the crime itself. Oh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, for example, you know, after Trump became the official Republican nominee, he started to receive security briefings, intelligence briefings. And these intelligence briefings did two things. One is they warned, they, they identified Russian interference and Russian hacking as being part of uh, what Russia was doing. But two, they also warned the Trump campaign of Russian efforts to infiltrate the campaign. So, and then after that, we've documented at the Moscow Project, they had almost 90 contacts 
with Kremlin-linked figures after those briefings took place. And so what you see is clear knowledge, clear awareness, and then yet sort of, you know, they ran toward the crime. And I think the the standard here is, you know, I, I, I think, right, this shouldn't necessarily be the legal standard of conspiracy. It's that these people are entrusted with protecting U.S. national security. And just as any person who served in government, you know, gets a security clearance, if this, if they're not meeting that standard, and this is a clear sort of, you know, raises red flags, I think that is something that worthy for Congress to investigate. And we shouldn't just have a legal standard when it comes to our national security. It, well, yeah, clearly we should not. You know, I mean, Joe, you've dealt your entire career with the most sensitive issues associated with national security, the most potentially dangerous areas associated with national security, where people have always set an extremely high standard for people having access to information or being involved in the decisions because everything the stakes are mm -hmm. so high. And I can only imagine how when you listen to Max or when you read the Mueller report or when you see these things, you think of just how far we've we've fallen from what you what you were used to, correct? You know, when you're on staff in the Congress, as I was, you know, you, you really sweat your security clearances. It's it's one thing to get an interim secret and then a, a, a top secret and then a code word clearance. But these are exhaustive uh, re reviews of your clearances and they make you list every place you've ever lived and and they go interview your friends and your neighbors and it just spreads out. And then to see them handing these clearances out like candy to White House uh, staff, to family members who, who you know have compromising situations in their past or in their present is, is not just, you know, worrisome. It's 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 morally disturbing that that you've lowered the um, the, the sort of st the, the the standard and the and the, the the assurances that the system is supposed to provide policymakers and the American public that only the most trusted people will have the most uh, uh, secret information. It's just gone completely out the window. One of a number of standards the Trump administration has dragged down into the gutter. Yeah, you know, well, I think about it, Max. I, I learned uh, moments before we went on the air that you worked with Joe, uh, and um, and and lived to tell about it, and have some <laughs> um, some some experiences in the, in this area. But you know, as, even just as I think about it, just in, and this I wasn't really planning to go this direction with the conversation, but even as I think about it, you know, when you think about sort of nuclear hotspot issues. And you think about people being compromised in the same way that we've seen compromises revealed in the Mueller report, then, you know, I mean, obviously you start with Russia, which has more nuclear warheads than anybody and is clearly an adversary and is developing new weapon systems and where we are in the midst of making some really momentous decisions regarding um uh, 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 the not just the end of the INF treaty, but what comes next. Right. Um, you've got you've you've got Russia, um, where there are a lot of compromises. We t Iran as an area. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Where their nuclear program um, uh, is is sort of in the crosshairs and and a bone of contention. And of course, the, their principal adversary are the Saudis. And there's a huge number of compromises with regard to the Saudis and the Israelis, 
um, both of whom would like to see Iran under uh, under greater pressure, and both of whom, were, you know, the, the, these people like Jared Kushner, like Donald Trump, are compromised. With North Korea, obviously, the Russian ties come into play, etc. So it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, what happened in the Trump Tower meeting. What it is is there is a pattern of behavior that would stop anybody from getting a clearance. And yet the people who are responsible for these issues, making policies in these issues and the policies that they're making are all compromised by these ties. I think that's I think that's completely right. And I think one of the things that is makes this really a national security crisis. And, you know, in some ways it was the national security folks, uh, former Obama administration officials, the deep state, that were freaking out initially in 2016, 2017 about the incoming Trump administration. And a lot of that hasn't gone away, but it's now we've sort of shifted into more of a legal process as opposed to, you know, in terms of the commentators and where the, the focus of the, uh, of the national discussion is. But to me, this is always ultimately a national security uh, issue. And when you see the administration, particularly relating to Russia and, and the Gulf, pursuing policies or approaches that really aren't explicable uh, in, in a normal sense, you know, it is in Trump's, um, you know, political interest, like, uh, you know, to, to, to do something harsh toward Russia, to take a hard line towards Vladimir Putin, and yet he doesn't do it. And then you start going back to, well, look how compromised he is. And we now know that the Trump Tower uh, negotiations that were happening during the campaign in 2016, in which, you know, in some ways the Trump Tower dealings resemble a lot of what happened in Brexit. Here's uh, with Aaron Banks and this financer, where you have this lucrative deal that's being sort of dangled out there in front of a very greedy businessman and then puts all this money, Trump puts all this money into his uh, own election. And the behavior is really hard to explain without looking at uh, their their actual financial ties to Russia. So the the nature of how people are compromised, I think, is really critical. And just one last point. So I think we as a country, we're so focused on terrorism, on counterterrorism, and we sort of lost sight of the basic you know operations of inter of international politics, of espionage and how it works. And I think what we've seen over the last few years is in some ways the intelligence community, the counterintelligence community playing catch up. You know, they're trying to sort of shift back mm -hmm. into kind of um, a great power uh, posture in which states are actually trying to compromise people within, within the government. Well, you know, Joe, as, as, as we look at it, I, I, I just think we're you know, talking about an area that is vitally important and is kind of underplayed in all of this. We still haven't seen the counterintelligence findings of the Mueller report. Um, and and we, we have every reason to believe that they're, they're being blocked and they may not have been able to follow through on them in, in the way that they, 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 they wanted to. Um, but we know that these contacts took place and we know that there have been these various compromises along the way on policy. But just in the past couple of you know days, um, we have the president of the United States who, as Max rightly notes, would benefit from being a little tough on Russia, um, uh, having his secretary of, first of all, making a call, another one of his many calls to Putin, which he apparently originated, which he didn't tell us about, the Kremlin mm -hmm. about, uh, 
And now his secretary of state goes and has uh, had some uh, conversations with the Russians and is going to go and see the Russians again. Meanwhile, he stands up the Germans to go off to Iraq to go and stir up the Iran thing. Then on his way to going see the Russians today, he, he drops by the Europeans you know, without any plan to see them. And they're like pissed off. They're like, what are we supposed to do? Drop everything we're doing to, to meet with you? So in other words, there is meanwhile right now dissing our NATO allies, undercutting their sort of involvement in this and elevating the Russians. He has today, at the day we're recording this, the the uh, Viktor Orban from Hungary in his office, who is <sighs> supported by the Russians. Orban is, you know, the David Duke of Central Europe. He's a anti-Semite. He's anti-democratic. He's vile by any conceivable measure. And Trump's like, you're doing a great job. You're just like me. But this is a Putin agenda item. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it just it continues on a daily basis in plain sight. Yes, that's exactly right. This is the the axis of autocrats. These are the people that that Trump not only seems to be, you know, sort of emotionally and ideologically close to, but you have to really raise concerns about how, what their financial ties are. You know, Max is exploring the financial ties with Russia. You could say the same for Saudi Arabia. Many of the people who are in the president's inner circle, including, of course, his son-in-law, have business relations with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates, et cetera. And yet they don't excuse themselves from the Middle East policies, uh, including uh, the, the purported peace plan, including policy towards Iran. They deeply involve themselves in these policies without any sense of, of the, the the appearance of a conflict of interest, an actual conflict of interest. So you have to be deeply worried about this. And as you say, Pompeo's actions, I, I don't know, you know, he came in with a pretty high reputation, but he, he it's, he's really suffering, you know, sort of the same thing that you saw happen in, in real time with, with Bill Barr, a person who came in with a high reputation, who has sold his soul to Trump, who is seeing his reputation dragged down. And the performance today at the European Union, our closest allies, the Western democracies, the people we have based our uh, 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 national security strategy on for, for decades, the people we base our our, our value system, our foreign policy, he he crashes their meeting. So he doesn't just, you know, show up unannounced for, a, a, you know, hi, how are you guys? They are having a meeting on how to save the Iran deal, how to keep Iran in the Iran anti-nuclear deal that stopped Iran's program, rolled it back, and then froze it for a good 15 years under an international inspection system. They're there trying to keep it alive uh, while Trump is trying to kill it, and Pompeo crashes in and, and, and invites himself in. The Europeans, to their credit, stiff-armed him. They did not give him the photo op he apparently wanted. There was no joint statement. He issues a statement about how he's consulting with the NATO allies on our shared you know, national security interests in the Persian Gulf. They don't want anything to do with it. In fact, you've seen some fairly insulting tweets come out uh, about the, the meeting so far. So from top to bottom, you see this this compromised, curious, um, um, uh, incoherent 
national security policy that can't be explained on an ideological basis or even a, a political basis. And so that's why most of us keep looking at these business ties. What else is going on here? What kind of corruption is taking place here that is that has taken over not just our domestic affairs, but our international affairs? Yeah, you know, the, Max, I, I don't want to undermine the work that you've done on the the the, the collusion, you know, to use their term, mm -hmm. uh, component of, of this, the pre-election component of it. But I increasingly think, and I've thought for a while, but increasingly think that the crimes of the Trump administration, the betrayals of the Trump administration have primarily taken place after all that was done. They take place every week. They take place in the fact that the president had five meetings with Putin where there were no notes, where when there were notes, he took the notes. When nobody can get a hold of any hint of what the record is, changes in policy, like this INF change in policy where we we, we pull out of an agreement that was actually, um, uh, you know, working and 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 we say, well, you know, that's because you know the Russians weren't complying with it. But essentially, what it does is it gives the Russians more freedom to do what they were doing. Um, and 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 you know, I mean, I, we can go on issue issue weakening the ties with NATO. You know, it's not a crime to weaken the ties with NATO. It's just the principal objective of our principal <clears throat> adversary in the world. Uh, and so, yep. you know, some sometimes things that are not technically on the books as crimes are much worse than the things that are on the books with crimes. I mean, am I? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like that's true. No, I. So, you know, I think, you know, the 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 difficulty with Trump, and I've heard it described at one point as sort of as you know, he has a we people attacking Trump have a zebra problem. Which is, you know, why do zebras have black and white stripes, even though that doesn't sort of blend in with the surroundings? It's because as a herd, together, the lion doesn't know where to attack. And so you have with Trump, you have so many different areas of potential crimes, potential scandal. And to me, you know, the the actions during the 2016 election, I think, are sort of incredibly um, uh damning and incre incredibly consequential to the future of our democracy in terms of how elections you know can be run and what where the norms are but you're entirely right that his conduct as president um, is you know I, in fact probably more important uh, in the grand sch scheme of things and how he has effectively I think not been working not to advance America's interests in the world. And you could argue, you could try to find some sort of, you know, develop an ideology to contort with Trump's view of the world. But I think his view of the world is ultimately centered around him and what's in his interests. And so what you see his actions, especially vis-a-vis -vis NATO in the EU, and the attack on the EU, I think, has been particularly pernicious. Now, this has sort of been a, the EU has sort of been this bugaboo for, for the far right in the United States for a long time. But with Pompeo and with Trump, they've taken it to a whole nother level. And the EU, you know, was sort of ignored by Russia for a long time. But when in 2014 with the Ukraine crisis, that was fundamentally about the EU. It was about Ukraine wanting to tilt towards the EU, toward Brussels, away from Moscow. Uh, and so the EU is seen as more pernicious, as something that they need Russia needed to work to divide it. And what we see from Trump 
is not just attacking NATO, which is incredibly damaging, but you know, Pompeo goes to Brussels and gives a speech and says that this whole thing is a, the whole EU concept is is ridiculous. They've tried to down, they've downgraded the EU ambassador here in Washington temporarily. They've now reversed that, but there's been this continuous effort to kind of erode uh, European unity. And why that matters, just one last you know, quick point, is one of the things that the towards the end of the Obama administration, when I was in the State Department, we started to sort of realize that hey, the Euro Europeans are much more effective when they act as one. And so you had working with Europe on Iran on climate change and on Russia sanctions. EU sanctions are way more potent and powerful than just individual European countries. And we see an exact opposite of that, trying to divide Europe uh, with this administration. And that advances Russia's interests and China's interests and not our own. Let me jump in on there if you don't mind. Please. Good, okay. Well, this is, you know, maybe I'm the only one who thinks that Mike Pompeo looks like Luca Brasi, the, the, one of uh, Don Corleone's most trusted <laughs> ad, ad, enforcers, but that's the role he played when he goes to the EU today. He's not there to consult. He's not there to show a transatlantic, uh, you know, a, a alliance solidarity. No, he's there to, to tell them to back off because the EU wants to save the Iran deal. As Max just said, they're trying to use their collective financial and economic power to try to provide some of the sanctions relief Iran was promised for the deal that Trump has been denying them since he pulled out of the deal a, a year ago. And, and he's met now, this is to their credit. The EU, you know, for the first two years of the Trump administration was basically trying to play nice with Trump. How do you win him over? Have, you know, Emmanuel Macron hold hands with him, things like that. You know, send the, send the British over there. But now they seem to be out of that phase. They understand how powerful the U.S. is, but they are now fighting back. They're stiff arming him. And I'm telling you, the, the kinds of comments you're seeing from the German foreign minister today, for example, about um, Pompeo's visit the EU representatives, the basic press. It's just, it's, it's rebuffing Trump. Now, this has two parts. One, it's good to see Europe standing up for itself and not being as, as uh, uh, they, they used, they used, Richard Pearl used to say, feckless, the feckless Europeans. They're actually trying to get some, but, but it's also, as Max points out, playing into Russia's hands. This is what they want. In some ways, Russia doesn't care what the overall policy is as long as it divides the U.S. from the European Union. Mike Pompeo, whether whether this is his ideology or he's just being the loyal enforcer, he is playing Trump's game and Trump is playing Putin's game. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know if you agree, Max, and I'm going to switch the topic here in a minute, but he does look a little like Luca Brazzi. Increasingly, he also <laughs> looks like the Death Star. Now, you know, I'm going to get a lot of shit about this, and people are going to say, don't fat shame the guy. And I'm, my response to that is, why the fuck not? This is a horrible guy who's a kind of religious extremist who's blowing up America's uh, standing in the world, is doing a terrible job at the State Department, um, is high-handing it with our allies, is kissing ass with our enemies. And we're supposed to be, and I'm, you know, I'm supposed to go and be like ultra respectful of this dude? Forget about it. Now, um, do you have an alternative villain you'd like to bring into this? <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote a piece in July of 2017 uh, about Rex Tillerson sort of destroying the State Department. And when Pompeo was appointed at state, I was sort of quite in some ways optimistic at the, yes. you know, he was much more, yeah, he, you know, he's was more right wing than Tillerson, 
But what Tillerson was trying to do was sort of bureaucratically destroy and gut the, the, the department. I thought, okay, Pompeo will sort of recognize the need to, to build up the department, to bring its swagger back, as he likes to describe it. But I've sort of been shocked that ever. I mean, not not completely shocked, but basically within the building, uh, people there are incredibly discontent, and it's the it's the the crazy radical right viewpoints that he's um, uh, advocating, the policy approaches, and then the build the way the building is run is not that much better, and he's mm-hmm. still in favor of of cutting the budget. One just sort of broader point connecting you know Pompeo to the Mueller report is let's be clear, the Mueller report, you know, the first first half of volume one should have resulted in a diplomatic onslaught abroad. The United States should have been, the State Department should have been talking to all our European allies and Asian allies and allies in Africa about how Russia interfered in our election and how this is a threat to them. And here are the steps that they need to be taking. That Because this is ultimately something that we... You know, we now have immense knowledge and information to provide to our partners. There's a European parliamentary election next week. Now, there's a lot of, you know, uh, rumors and talk of, of Russian interference in that election. And there hasn't been a strong Europe-wide response to Russian interference in, in elections. And this should be something that Pompeo should be out you know, using his bully pulpit to talk to others about. And in fact, I think the State Department has been been pretty has been almost silent on this. And it's it's quite shocking that here we have this major counterintelligence report that has real relevance to our allies that are under threat from Russia, and we're not really talking to them about it. Right. Well, this is the, this is the, this is the interesting thing, and I want to switch gears a little bit here, and I want to go to you next, Joe. But you know, I, I just I I can't emphasize the point enough. There are sort of petty crimes here. There is greed. There is the fact that um, that uh, Putin essentially has been able to buy the most massive consequential shift in U.S. foreign policy stance, in, in U.S. sort of geopolitical outlook, in the past 75 mm-hmm. years for a very, very low price. And, you know, so to me, if you look at it in the long run, yes, the president um, betrayed the country. Yes, he obstructed justice. Yes, he is now systematically stonewalling the Congress and is in the midst of a constitutional crisis. But the biggest damage he may be doing, the greatest damage he may be doing is 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 in it is geopolitically it's blowing up america standing in the world it's blowing up the international order of the past 75 years it's raising up our enemies it's pulling down our allies and joe one of the places where the damage was extremely obvious was when he pulled out of the iran deal for no reason and with no alternative in in mind um uh, and uh but it played to Saudis, where he's got some economic interest, the Israelis, where he's got some political interest, but also his his son-in-law has some economic interest, um, the Russians, to some extent, who are closer to the Iranians than we are, um, uh, created tension between us and the Europeans, which is something that the Russians wanted to see, as you've said. Um, and as, it was a, you know, a huge blunder. And now there's... 
American B-52s flown into the region, American carrier strike group flown into the region. There's now American fighter jets, as of today, mm -hmm. patrolling the air over the Persian Gulf. We, this is, you know, I mean, again, you know, it's one thing to talk about George Papadopoulos, you know, and, you know, right. is he a coffee boy? But but th we're, this is at a different level. Right. Everything we've talked about so far is terrible. It is ongoing. Uh, it, we're trying to find ways to stop Trump. But this could get a lot worse. And, and the Persian Gulf is the place where it could get a lot worse. There is no question in my mind that John Bolton and Mike Pompeo are trying to goad Iran into war that that is the purpose of what they are doing. And they've been doing it steadily, step by step, since the minute John Bolton was elected, was selected as National Security Advisor. I had some doubts about Pompeo, whether he wanted this or not, but I'm convinced that, that, that he does want this, that he sees this in, in his national interest, in, in his interest. I don't know where Trump is on this. You know the rap. Does Trump really want to have a war? But he's certainly going along with this. And I think in part because the Saudis and Bibi Netanyahu want him to. So here's the situation. Some of the things that Bolton announced just last week, this has happened so fast, with, with deployments that were already underway, but he repositioned them a little bit, he repackaged them a little bit, and he, and he made it about Iran. And so we, and then he issues, and this is what he, the statement he gave on May 5th as he's announcing the deployment of the carrier battle group. And by the way, notice that Bolton makes the announcement, not Trump, the National Security Advisor says this on, on Sunday night, that we're doing this to deter Iran from, from any, any attacks. And if Iran or Iran forces or Iran proxies attack the United States or Iran, U.S. forces or U.S. allies, there will be, a, you know, an overwhelming and, uh, response. Well, that is a pretty broad red line. I mean, they consider the Houthis in Yemen to be Iran proxies. So if they shoot down a Saudi jet that's bombing uh, Yemen targets, is, is that an attack on one of our allies? Pompeo, a few days ago, linked the Hamas rocket attacks uh, from the Gaza Strip to Iran, saying, well, this is, again, they consider Hamas an Iran proxy. So you realize you now have a lot of places, a lot of sparks that could set off a fire that I'm not sure Trump wants. I don't think the Iranians want it, but there are forces in, in the American politic and there are, Amer there are forces in the Iranian politic that do want such a clash. And this pressure, pressure, pressure is making the risk of war steadily rise. I don't know anybody who is calm about this situation right now, with the possible exception of the U.S. media. This is one last thing, and then I'll shut up. You know, they, they we're still so concerned about the issues we normally talk about, about what Trump is doing with the Congress, what Trump is doing with the, with the Mueller report, that we, we still st tend to separate foreign policy as if it was somehow different, as if it was still sacred, as if this was still stuff that's being made in the best interest of the, of the, of the United States, and that there were seasoned hands directing all this. I don't think that's true at all. And the media has to do a much better job of questioning the statements they're hearing from officials. So when, they, when the officials say that they've detected some eroding activity, where's the proof? Where's the evidence? What intelligence is underlying that? We have to remember that we walked the same walk in the, pre the prelude to the Iraq war, and we can't sleepwalk into another even bigger war. We can't let this happen again. 
Yep. Well, you know, it's, it seems to me one way we could cast the Mueller report then, Matt, <laughs> is kind of the original sin of the Trump administration. You know, this, this is how they started. This is how they made the uh, move towards getting into office. This showed who they were, who they were willing to work with, what they would prioritize. Uh, it showed their lack of respect for the rule of law. It showed their lack of respect for American interests around the world. Uh, it showed their willingness to reward overseas enemies, uh, provided that they helped Trump individually. Uh, and now this has led us to where we are with Russia, with Europe, in the Middle East, with Iran, with North Korea, in Venezuela, with autocrats from Orban to Duterte in the Philippines, uh, with the crumbling uh, alliances or relationship we have with um, uh, allies uh, associated with uh, uh, broken uh, promises, trade deals, or other kinds of spats. Um, it's, it, you know, it was the first set of dominoes, but the effect keeps knocking on. Yeah, I think, I think that's completely right. And, you know, one of the things that's also sort of in the Mueller report is that there are, you know, this wasn't simply the Russians seeing an opportunity that it was easy to manipulate the, the Trump team and the folks around Trump's Orban and Trump himself, but it was many in the Middle East. You know, the uh, the UAE lobbyist George Nader is one of the guys cooperating. That mysterious Seychelles meeting that took place during the transition. There's a you weird mean, line. the one that Eric Prince just happened to drop by at? He was just in Yeah, the Eric Prince just happened to be in the neighborhood a small island nation in the middle of the Indian Ocean where, you know, MBZ just happened to be. Uh, and, and you know, and then you also look at, there, you know, there's a weird line in the Mueller report about George Papadopoulos, about how he has ties to Israel uh, and potentially Israeli intelligence. And it says those ties were significant, but we decided not to charge him for being a foreign agent of the Israeli government. That, you know, that's one of those like, huh? Like, please explain more. And, but I think where we get is that this is administration that is easily easy to manipulate um, by autocrats because they autocrat you know corrupt autocrats get this oh mm -hmm. there's a family here's this family <laughs> what do we do oh we know what to do that's what that's us so we you know <laughs> money you know lavish praise and so I think one of the you know the point that Joe made about Iran I think is. Dead on. Like right now, you know, it's not a dissimilar situation to where we were before the Iran deal, uh, when there was talk of the Israelis potentially striking Iran in 2011 and 2012, where you have Netanyahu, who's just won re-election, who doesn't want to do this himself, but would love for the Americans to uh, take on Iran. You have the Saudis pushing for it, and then you now have the Trump administration itself, ad you know, advocating, and without the deal in place, they can say, they can just invent and say, oh, the Iranians are rushing toward a bomb. And so we now are in this really terrible logic of a president in sort of a political downward spiral looking to distract. The, here's an easy um, you know, issue to sort of invent a crisis and invent a war. And all the, you know, just to tie this back to Russia and Vladimir Putin, is one of the things that the Russians and the Chinese want from the Trump administration 
is to commit own goals, is to uh, make mistakes, is to further sully the re- international reputation of the United States, to put the United States back into a quagmire. It's kind of a geopolitical problem for Russia and China if we're extricating ourselves from geopolitical quagmires, as we you know, appear to have been doing over the last you know, decade and getting out of Iraq, reducing our presence in Afghanistan. They want us in these quagmires. And so if the Trump administration was going to get the United States back into one, while they, you know, uh, you know, uh, internationally would not support the United States invading or, or taking on Iran, I think, you know, this this has real benefits for the Russians if we were to get in a, another conflict and be seen as an international pariah. Let me quickly just spell out what some of those benefits are real quick. In addition to dividing the alliance and and dragging us down, it, of course, isolates us in the world. Outside of the, 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 the Gulf states and Israel, there isn't a single country that wants us to do this. Number two, it drives Iran closer to Russia, of course. This is this will be a big, bloody, extended war. Who get you know, where, do, where does Iran go? It's not going to be to Europe. It's going to be more towards Russia and China. Number three, and this should be obvious, it drives up the price of oil, Russia's major uh, uh, export. So when you look at this geopolitically, regional politics, uh, global interests, this a war with Iran would actually, even though it would seem to be incredibly disruptive for the global economy, it would benefit Russia. So let me say a couple of things here, um, just as we wrap this up, that are just housekeeping notes before I thank these guys. Um, the first of all is, which I do periodically because I think it's the right thing to do, um, is that sometimes when uh, a, a country or a company comes on that we are, we've done some work with, I want to mention that because I don't want people to think we're hiding some conflict of interest. And we have done, we are doing some works, uh, some conferences on on some you know subjects like uh, women's empowerment, green energy, and so forth with the UAE. Um, and uh, uh, Max mentioned them, uh, and I hope the, those of you who notice that suggest that sometimes when you're doing work like that, it compromises content. It doesn't compromise content. Max was talking about something that's very critical of them. We have been regularly critical of them with regard to Yemen, for example, and some of these other policies, and we will be again uh, because there's no connection between the work that we do and the editorial content that we provide. The second thing that I want to talk about, and I feel obligated to because Joe is the wokest guy in Washington, is that we never, ever do podcast without um, gender balance. Yes. And and Joe has even commented on that publicly. And Evelyn Farkas, who was supposed to join us for this, um, uh, at the very last minute, because she's in Brussels, Belgium, was unable to Ooh. make connection work. Um, and so I just want you to know we're always sensitive to that. And, of course, Rosa and Corey are, are, are regulars in our heart and soul here. Um, but in this particular case, you heard three male voices, and I apologize for that, uh, particularly coming on the heels of Mother's Day as it did. Happy Mother's <laughs> Day, everybody. Um, but I admire, Joe, the work that you are doing um, uh, to – to promote the involvement of women in national security, which I think is vitally important. And I, I know you guys have been super active on that. Well, thank you very much, David. And, and you're right. I do greatly appreciate the gender balance on on a deep state radio. And it is very often that it'll be you and three or four uh, w- w- women commentators. So this is an uh, extremely unusual step to have three men talking. Um, it, it, I think the, it, it all balances out. <laughs>
Yeah, and I'm uh, by the way, um, Max. You know, maybe you've listened in or not, but I regularly ex- and exclusively only choose women who are smarter than me, <laughs> um, uh, which leaves we, gives us about three point five billion to choose from. Um, in in any event, I, I want to thank Max, and I hope you come back, Max, because I think you're great, and I think you're doing great work. Thank you. Uh, and I, I want to thank Joe, uh, who I trust you will come back because you're one of our regulars and you're fantastic. Thank uh, you, David. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.